Ion 2020, episode 138. Have 2020 vision with Ion 2020, the podcast that brings you all the news and events in the lead up to the next presidential election. I am Ray Eaton, and I will keep you up to date as we approach November 2020 with a libertarian perspective of all the candidates and their policies, along with the news. Thank you for tuning in. Now let's clear our vision. What's up, everybody? Ray Eaton here. The host that brings you the news, the related events, the things that are going on in the 2020 election. Thank you for joining me today. If it's your first time listening, if you would like to, and you like what you hear at the end of the show, go ahead and subscribe to the show. That'll help you to hear it tomorrow. Whatever podcatcher you're listening to, you could probably subscribe to the show, and that'll allow you to get this show into your podcatcher tomorrow, so you'll have it in your feed, because I come here Monday through Friday, five days a week, in order to make sure that you are up to date on what's going on with the 2020 elections, what's going on with the candidates, what's going on with their policies, who's dropped out, who's gotten in, which third party is running, which third party is doing good, which, you know, Republicans deciding to go run against Trump, what Trump's saying to the other candidates, the tweets, the Twitter wars that they have, things like that. You're, you know I'm going to bring those things to you. I've done it five days a week since January, and I'm going to continue to do it until December 2020. So, uh, keep on following me, and you can do that by subscribing to the show. If you want to listen to some previous episodes, you can as well. I got 130 some odd episodes before this one, and that is exciting. I'm getting into that 150 mark, and then onto the 200 mark. So uh, I just keep on going every single day because I want to make sure that you have all of the information you need to make some good decisions when 2020 comes around. So I appreciate you subscribing to the show. If you'd like to, if you really like what you hear, give me that five star rating and review. And then if you want to follow me, you could uh, follow me on Facebook and on Twitter and on Minds, and that is at uh, I am the Empire. You just type in I am the Empire and you'll find me there. And then IamTheEmpire.com is the website. And if you have stories to tell about your life and what you're doing within the libertarian movement in order to gain followers and gain people's trust, things that you might be doing, maybe you have a podcast, you have a website, you're just doing things, in your local community, if you have a story like that and something that you've done in order to move liberty forward in your neighborhood and your community, then go ahead and email me, rate at ionlyempire.com and tell me that story. I will give you the last minute of my show every single time. You know I will. I've done it for plenty of people. I've done it for plenty of podcasts and I've done it for several other websites as well and I'll do it for you because I want to know what you're doing and I want to You know, let other people know what you're doing as well so that we can get this movement going forward for 2020. So maybe our libertarian candidate will be a little bit more libertarian so that our libertarian candidate might be able to get a few more votes and so that the Republicans and the Democrats start electing more libertarian-leaning candidates. That would be great, right? And the only way they're going to do that is if we have a movement. If they are able to get votes by pandering to us who want less government... They will. We just have to have a movement. We just have to have more and more people that are on board with that. So, hey guys, what I wanted to talk to you today, though, about is this. Government power. Government power. There is two extremes that you can have with government power. You can have complete control, 
unlimited power. You could have a government that has no power whatsoever, just a government that's there, but it doesn't have any power to coerce or force or anything like that. It's just maybe a group of people that kind of make policies and talk about them and try to influence people in one way or another through persuasion, but not coercion, right? Or you could have the unlimited government that has the unlimited power, that has 100% control to monopolize force, to make you do what you want, that they want you to do, no matter what. And every government in the world is somewhere in between that, right? Every government in the world is somewhere in between that. Whether it was the Soviet Union, which in the 1930s, 1940s, and throughout its history actually had 100% control. The Communist Party was a single party that had not 100% control, because obviously no government could have 100% control, but if you did not do what they said, then you'd be thrown to the gulags, sent to the gulags, and all that stuff, right? Uh, But there was obviously black markets within the Soviet Union, there was things that were outside of the government control, there's always going to be something that's outside the government control, because that's just the way people are, they will hide as much as they can if if the incentive is there for them to do it, and obviously if you are somebody who has you know, enough food and enough other stuff, and you're able to trade those things among people on a black market, then it incentivizes you not to bring it onto the white market because of the way the communist system is, and maybe you'd be taxed on those things, or maybe you would be looked at as somebody that has too much wealth, and then they would confiscate that stuff from you, so your incentive to keep your stuff is to keep it on the black market. So there's going to be a black market, even in a country that has, you know, supposedly 100% control, and then on the flip side, you have the government that has no coercive power whatsoever, and every government is somewhere in between there. America is somewhere on that spectrum from no control whatsoever to complete control. And what I want to talk about today is that, exactly, is that what type of government is the best? What type of government is going to serve us the best, right? And uh, we look at America today, and we look at the way that the government is set up. It's up in there in Washington, and lately you have been seeing that the government does not have, or the not the government, the executive branch does not have quite as much control as people think it does. And the reason why I say this is because this. Donald Trump has been putting all kinds of executive orders out there, one to build the wall, one to take when to take money and funnel it to the wall. He's been talking about taking money and sending it to Yemen. He's been talking about putting the citizenship question onto the ballots. And he's issuing these executive orders left and right in order to get these things to happen, but then a judge goes and under overturns those things. And you know, it's in the news for a week, two weeks, three weeks, that this is what that Donald Trump is going to do, that he's declaring an executive order because the Congress won't go along with him on these things, and all of a sudden a, quote, liberal judge will go and overturn those things, and then the, then the federal government and the executive has no power, Donald Trump has no power to go ahead and put that thing on the ballot or, you know, funnel that money to the wall, funnel that money to Yemen and so forth. There's very little power that the executive has if a judge is willing to turn that stuff over. And that's because we have a system set up where the three branches of government have, they share the power, they share their power equally. So a lot of the stuff that the president does though, a lot over time, the Congress has delegated a lot of their power over to the president, especially on the war powers issue. But since the government or the Congress has given the president so much power because of 
the delegation of that power, uh, it's something that can be taken back, and that's a good thing. But we do see that there is a limit on the power of the executive as well as the Congress, as well as the even the judiciary branch. The judiciary branch actually seems like it has the most power of all of them. Uh, and I don't think there's been a lot of challenges to the judiciary branch. I think they're trying to make some challenges to Roe versus Wade right now with the uh, states taking and, you know, making abortion illegal and up to at six weeks and different states that are doing more extreme things on that issue. But they are trying to take some power away from the judiciary because of that, I guess. But, you know, our government does have some limits and it's sure it's in there in the Constitution in order to have those limits. Uh, which is a great thing that's a, that the Founding Fathers was a, were able to do at the time, and it has slowed the growth of our government. I mean, our government has been around since the 1780s, pretty much, and the growth has slowed. I mean, I think the Constitution was was finally signed by the last signer in 18 or 1791, I believe, and over that time, this government has slowly grown, very slowly. The times that it takes the most power away from the people is during wartime. You saw it with the War of 1812. You saw it with the Civil War specifically. A huge amount of power is taken away from the states during the Civil War. And then you see it just before World War I. There was a lot of things that happened, like with the Federal Reserve Act, with the with the income tax happening and all the different... This, I think it was the 16th Amendment that caused the income tax, wasn't it? And... It allowed the government to start to grow exponentially at that point with the fact that it had the ability to just start printing money. It had the ability to start taxing that money and so forth. And then on top of that, during World War II is when you start seeing the state really, you know, really get itself together. You have the FBI at that around that time come to the CIA, foreign entanglements start happening, and the government just starts growing exponentially, especially after World War II. And it starts taking away more and more power from the people. But the times that it happens is during crisis times. So even now, with the, with 9-11, they exploited that to their best of their ability by p- passing the Patriot Act, which allowed domestic spying, which allowed a lot of your constitutional rights to go away. And the government is going to continue to take away those rights. It's our job to stand firm as a people and educate people and say, no, those are things that the government should not be doing. And we need to hold our government accountable. But the great thing about the Constitution is that it has allowed that slow growth of government. That at some point we can start pulling that, pulling that growth away. Because when a government has unlimited power, when, the, when one person has that much control over the federal government or over any government, then you do get the things that happen uh, where the government basically enslaves its people in some ways and uh, and I'll get to that in just a second is what I'm is what I'm getting at is the things that happen when you have unlimited government but our government luckily over time has grown so slowly that we could probably stop the growth of government if we wanted to as long as the people were able to rise up elect and elect people that were willing to stop the growth of government for example Look at 2008. Barack Obama gets elected, right? Uh, 2008, the, the, the financial crisis is in full swing, and the federal government starts bailing out banks, bailing out automakers, printing money left and right, lowering interest rates, doing all kinds of stuff that is just you know only benefiting the very wealthy. On top of that, you have Barack Obama at the time 
that starts doing something with a with the idea of passing Obamacare, and you see the rise of the Tea Party movement, and like within two years, you see Congress is back to being a Republican House. You have a House of Representatives that's uh, that is Republican, and by the 2012, you have the Senate that is now Republican as well. It was a counterbalance to the over, you know, the it was a counterbalance to the Democrats who were doing so many things to try to take away liberty from people. And then you'll see that on the on the right as well when you get a Donald Trump in office and he starts doing things that are outside of the norm and the Democrats hate it, you start seeing the rise of the Democrats at that point. That pendulum swings back and forth, back and forth in this country. So there's always a counterbalance to the growth of the government. Now it continues to grow. Though. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just saying it. there's a slow growth of government in America, but we always have that counterbalance. That pendulum keeps swinging back and forth because of, the, because of the two sides that are fighting back and forth for that power, I guess. But it's also because the American people resist that change. They resist things that the government's trying to do to it, do to them. Constantly, they're just always resisting that. And that's a good thing. That's a that's a very positive thing that the American people can start a movement like the Tea Party movement in order to get people elected like Thomas Massey, like Justin Amash, different people that are liberty-focused. And then you also have the panderers that get elected in those times as well. I mean, look at Marco Rubio. He ran as a Tea Party Republican in 2010 and got elected into, into the Senate. Marco Rubio... The war hawk of them all. The guy that's always for every war, right alongside, you know, some of these other war hawks as well, like Lindsey Graham. They're always right there, ready for every single war, and more spending and more this and more that, obviously. Marco Rubio, but he got elected as a Tea Party a Tea Party patriot, I guess you'd call it, right? But you get those panders that do that. Now, as those as the Tea Party starts to disintegrate and it you know falls apart a little bit, you have those people, their true colors start to show. But for the time being, for that first two or three years, he was pandering to that base because he had to. So that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But their true colors always come out. If we stop holding them accountable, their true colors will come out. But as long as people hold them accountable, there is some power that you have over those people that are in Congress and in the Senate and so forth. But um, unlimited power, guys, that's what I wanted to get at next, okay? You have the Soviet Union that formed in about two, th- it was a eight, or excuse me, 1918, 1917. Um, the Soviet Union gets formed, and you have Lenin that's running the place, and he was a bad guy, you know, definitely a bad guy. Uh, I mean, they're all bad guys. All these statists are bad guys. But these are communists. This is the communist revolution at the time, the Bolshevik revolution. And they fought in order to become the legitimate leaders of, of Russia. Russia fell. The, 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 um, the Tsar of Russia, you know, he, he was overthrown at the time. We're right in the midst of World War I. And Lenin uses... World War One as a springboard in order to get the Bolshevik Revolution to happen and for the communists to be put into power. So you see over that time, imagine imagine in that world, right? You you have a you have a czar who has a hundred percent power, and then all of a sudden, I mean, th- I'm sure there was some kind of power that was not 
that the Tsar did not have. I'm sure there was some kind of assembly that had some control over the way that the, the government worked and so forth. But essentially, Russia, you know, had a Tsar that had 100% power in some way. And you get uh, the Bolshevik Revolution happens, and you get somebody that gets in the, you know, gets in the power that wants to start communism, wants to have a communist state. He's an he's a ideologue that wants to have a communist state. And he knows that, you know, you, you can get 100% power. There, there were elections in the first part of the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union, I think it started in like 19, 1918 is when they actually start, had their first real, um, what would you call it, their first uh, pact, I guess is what it would say, or a constitution, I guess is the, the, the term that you would use. So they had their first real constitution in 1918, and then in 1922, there was a there was a new constitution that was set then in 1926 again and then in 1936 was the final constitution that was the uh, stalinist constitution right and all of these things that what they did is they talked about the unification of the soviets which the soviets were the different um states within the soviet union so you had russia you had ukraine you had latvia you had uh, belarus a different bunch of other of these baltic states and so forth and they all came together as the soviet union and that's what they were based upon but the idea was that the central power be in russia and in the in moscow and that it would have 100 percent control over those states that those states would have to organize according to the soviet in you know, the communist system that they were going to have so, during that time, Lenin is trying to shore up power along with the other Bolsheviks. They're trying, to, they're trying to shore up the power within that state structure. And it took a long time for this to happen. So, in, 19, in the 1920s, late 1920s, they're having a hard time because the economy is good, everything's okay. But at the end of the, or the beginning of the Great Depression, at the end of the 1920s, you see the Great Depression happen, and that is a calling card to Stalin at the time to say, hey, look what capitalism does. We need to shore up power. We need to you know, be an example to the capitalist world of how the, how the communist system is going to be, how the workers being united is going to be, how these collectivist farms are going to be, that they're going to be the, the savior of the world at that point. And people are looking to Russia as like... A leader in this the soviet union becomes a leader in you know i mean other countries start trying to become more like the soviet union that time even if you look at america i mean how are you, how are you going to get through the great depression without something like social security like all these different entitlement programs that happened at that time as well as the new deal yeah that happened at that time and those are all things that are kind of hearkening to collectivist collectivism like you had the working groups that would go out and they'd build the dams and the you know fix these roads and all this stuff and these are collectivist groups you didn't have a collectivization of like the means of production or anything like that at that time but the great depression really allowed stalin at that point so lenin's passed away by this point right and stalin's the leader of russia and or of the soviet union he's able to really hearken and say listen guys you know, this is what capitalism did. We need to start a new structure and so forth. And in 1928, he starts the first five-year plan. And the five-year plan ended in the starvation of millions upon millions of people in the Ukraine. He starts basically taking over more and more power from the people. He starts making it so that the, that the federal government or the Soviet government 
and Moscow has complete 100% power over the other, other Soviets. You had him in, in the Far East taking over. I mean, this is still Russia, but you know he has to control the Far East. He has to control the borderlands between uh, China and Russia because Japan's starting to threaten. Uh, he has to control the borderlands along the Polish border. He has to control the borderlands with Ukraine and so forth because Ukraine is one of the Soviets, but that's the place where the most of the food is grown at the time. And during that time, he starts trying to shore up the power. He's trying to get unlimited power for the government. And he does a lot of things in order to make that happen. The first thing he does is he creates the gulags. You guys heard of the gulags, I'm sure. And he ended up selling 18 million people over that first five-year period to the gulags. This is 18 million people to Siberia in order to basically make them become communists. These are people that are not quite on board with the communist system. They are the middle class, essentially. I mean, they call them the peasants. They called them um, the gula, I think is the name of the term that they used. And those people were the upper class I guess you'd say the upper class peasants. So you had the peasants, then you had the little bit slightly more wealthy peasants. And those are the people that got sent to the gulags. And that's 18 million people that are sent to the gulags. The, the fear that's instilled in these people at that point. Imagine if the United States rounded up all the middle class that were not okay, like the upper middle class, let's say, and rounded up all of them and sent them to someplace in Alaska for these camps to be re-educated, right? Imagine the fear that you would have if 18 million people, that's that would be, you know, close to 6% of the population in the United States, I guess, get sent to the get sent to Alaska, and the government's just rounding these people up and sending them there. That's the same example that's happening in Russia at the time. But I'm sure there was, I mean, there must have been only about 100, I would, I, I'd like to see the number, but probably, let's say there's 100 million people in Russia at that point. I can't imagine there's much more than that. This is the early, you know, the, the middle of the 20th century, I guess. So imagine 100 million people. So let's say 20% of the population is sent to the gulags in the Soviet Union. Amazing that, th- that this he was able to get away with this, but he got away with it through certain means, using the state police and so forth. And the, the fear that's instilled, because most people will just go along with those things. Most of the people will just go along with these things. And what happens is that there's, um, that the fear makes it so that the government's coming able to come in and collectivize all the farms in the Ukraine and across all of Russia and you end up having major famines because of that because the the government comes in and in order to what Stalin ended up doing in the Ukraine is he takes a lot of these people and sends them to the gulags and then you're left with just the peasants with no kind of leadership I guess because those people the more successful ones were kind of like the leaders of the of the place and then he sets quotas for these peasants to meet in order for these collectivist farms in order to get them to send it to send that the product that they grow to Moscow or it's owned I mean it's essentially owned by the government right so these collectivist farms they have quotas and they're not meeting their quotas so in order to meet their quotas the peasants end up giving the seed, the the seeds that are going to be used to plant for the next season. They get, they end up giving that seed over to the government or in order to meet their quotas. And they're still not meeting their quotas at that point. But they give all of that seed that they're going to use to plant for the next season to the government. And then the next season they have no seeds to plant. And they start petitioning the government. The government says, 
Um, the government says that they're using conspiracies and that they're hiding the seeds and stuff like that, and they're not being held accountable to get the seeds back to the people in order to, to plant. And it ends up in 1933 with mass starvation. Six million Ukrainians die of starvation. And let me tell you about what happened. And actually, I'm going to let you read or let you hear an excerpt from a book that I'm reading right now, or I'm listening to right now on Audible. And uh, and then you you kind of make some determinations for yourself. But here's what it says. Summer 1933. All children were expected to report on their parents. Survival was a moral as well as a physical struggle. A woman doctor wrote to a friend in June 1933 that she had not yet become a cannibal, but was not sure that I shall not be one by the time my letter reaches you. The good people died first. Those who refused to steal or to prostitute themselves died. Those who gave food to others died. Those who refused to eat corpses died. Those who refused to kill their fellow man died. Parents who resisted cannibalism died before their children did. Ukraine in 1933 was full of orphans, and sometimes people took them in. Yet without food, there was little that even the kindest of strangers could do for such children. The boys and girls lay about on sheets and blankets, eating their own excrement, waiting for death. In one village in the Kharkiv region, several women did their best to look after children. As one of them recalled, they formed something like an orphanage. Their wards were in a pitiful condition. The children had bulging stomachs, they were covered in wounds, in scabs, their bodies were bursting. We took them outside, we put them on sheets, and they moaned. One day the children suddenly fell silent. We turned around to see what was happening, and they were eating the smallest child, little Petrus. They were tearing strips from him and eating them. And Petrus was doing the same. He was tearing strips from himself and eating them. He ate as much as he could. The other children put their lips to his wounds and drank his blood. We took the child away from the hungry mouths, and we cried. So that is disgusting, isn't it? This is getting to the point in Ukraine in 1933 that people are willing to uh, use acts of cannibalism, eating each other in order to stay alive. And this is hidden from the world at the time. News media, Ukraine has a wall, not a wall around it essentially, but there's no way in and out for that information to get there. Uh, the people that do know about it in Poland, the government knows about it, and they're suppressing it at the time because of a of a pact that they made in 1932 with the Soviet Union, a non-aggression pact. So they're not going to let that information get out as well. And there's people that are trying to migrate out of Ukraine to Poland where there's not a famine going on, where there's actually food. They're trying to get out of the country. And then Stalin sends his troops in order to stop those people from going to, to Poland. And in these collectivist farms, they had they, they literally had... Um, watchtowers up to make sure no one's stealing from the farms that the people are working the way they're supposed to and that people are telling on other people if the, like if you get caught stealing something and somebody sees you do it they'll tell on you and then they'll be rewarded and you'll be killed immediately like it is just terrible what's going on in that time but that's that's total government that is a government that has a hundred percent control and if you don't think that things can happen like that when you have a socialist environment where the government has to start taking control over parts of the economy and continue to take more and more control. It takes a long time for that to happen. The Soviet Union started in 1918. This isn't until 1933 that this starts happening. 
That's 15 years that it takes for that to happen. So how fast can it happen in America if you allowed, uh, say, 100% control by the government? If you allowed the government to get out of control like that, how fast can it happen to America? It might happen in five years. It might happen in 15 years. It might happen in 30 years. But it's going to happen. It happened in Venezuela. Look at Venezuela, 1999. Uh, Hugo Chavez becomes the leader of that country. I think it was 1998. And it's the envy of the world, the envy of all the socialists in the world for you know, 12, 13 years until finally you know, it starts to crumble. It starts to crack. Those things happen. I mean, it's just the way it is. And it might be five years, it might be 15 years like it was for the Soviet Union. But those things, as the government starts to take more and more control, it has to take more control over more things as well. It's just the way it is. Why would you need, why would you need watchtowers in, in, on someone's farm? So let's say I own a farm. Do I need a government watchtower to make sure I'm not stealing any of the food? In a, in a capitalist system, no, because I'm going to grow as much corn as I can so I can sell it on the market and get rid of it and make my profits. That's the way it is. Like, you don't need force in a capitalist society. You don't need that force. The only force you need is somebody maybe to protect your cornfields. And you could do that with a private security force. You could have a public police force, whatever, in the capitalist society. But you don't need the watchtower in order to make sure that I'm not stealing food and that my workers are working. They're getting paid to work. And if they're not producing enough, then I fire them. But I don't need a watchtower to make sure that stuff happens, right? But in any system where there's the government forcing people to do certain things, then you're going to have the bureaucrats that are there to make sure that stuff gets done. And that's an extra cost incurred in order to make sure those things get done because you're using force. So in a, in a capitalist society, you wouldn't need that extra force. And that's a good thing. But um, when you have the 100% government, you have that, you know, that government that's on that extreme side, you're going to have the black markets and so forth as well. But you're going to have the government trying to take more and more of the economy until there has to be more and more force. And then people are not willing to work under that force. Those gulag or those farmers that were on those collectivist farms, they were not willing to work as hard to make things happen. I think it was by 1936 is when Stalin finally realized, hey, let everyone have a small patch of land that they could grow their own food on. And those things, I mean, those, those farms, where they, those little patches of food where they could grow their own food, hugely popular. And people made, that, that stuff went into the black market, so there was food. I mean, it was just, uh, I mean, but the history of that, they had to learn that. They had to go through all of the death of 6 million people, 18 million people into gulags, right? We're not going to get to that point in America because I think of the way that it is in America is we do have the separation of powers. The executive can't get too much power, but it's only good if the leadership and if the people hold the leadership accountable. So if the leadership believes in it, that there is a separation of powers, if the leadership decides not to ignore that separation of powers, if the Congress holds the executive accountable, it does not delegate all of their power to the executive, and if the judiciary has some kind of control over it as well, the judicial branch. And if you have that separation of power, you're not going to have that growth of government the way that it happened in the Soviet Union. But it could happen is if the people are not if the people are not holding their leaders accountable to it, it can happen. And that's what we need to be doing is striving to hold our leaders accountable to freedom, 
to, you know, self-determination, to liberty, to these libertarian principles that we have. We need to hold our leaders accountable to that, that the government needs to be regulated by the people, that the government needs to be held back as it tries to grow. When that pendulum swings to the left, we need to get it back to the right and so forth and back and forth, right? That the government does not start to grow. But what we need to do as libertarians, we need to start holding our leaders accountable to stop the growth of government altogether. That's what we really need to do. And we need to start talking to other people about this message so that they will start holding their leaders accountable as well. And then we get the pandering to those that want to have less government. And that's how, we'll, that's how we'll change the culture of this world. So, hey guys, I may have went on a little longer than I expected to on this. I apologize. But I really wanted to talk to you guys about that. The huge government that we have, at least there's some kind of control over the growth. But at least we're not the Soviet Union where you could have a dictator like Stalin starving people in order to get his way. We're not going to get to that point, hopefully. But that's on you and me and everybody else in America to hold our leaders, leaders accountable to make sure that, that that does not happen, okay? So let's get out there and talk to our friends and our family about libertarian ideals and the message of liberty, the message of non-aggression. And then if you guys come back tomorrow, I'll help you guys to have a clear vision for 2020.